introduced to like cocaine at 15. I was like, yeah, mm. that's great. That gets rid of all of my problems. Yeah, there was times that I'd like, I'd woken up in hospital once after a big bender. And I thought I was in like a BBC show that was like a hospital mockumentary about um, hospital staff who were like taking photos of women in the x-ray booths and putting uh, bad hip replacements into into old women to save money. And so that took me to some quite dark places. You know, recovery is the cornerstone of my life. Everything I put before it, I will lose. So this has to come first. And everything that comes afterwards is only from the grace of God, really. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life, addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. For this episode, please welcome Alex. Hello and welcome, Alex, to this very first episode of... 12 steps and 12 questions. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Sylvia. How That's are you? great. Thank you so much for coming around. I'm so pleased that you've made time and um, are supporting me with my new venture. Would you like to introduce yourself very quickly? What's um, your name? How old are you? Yeah, sure. So, hi, my name's Alex. I'm 29 for um, a very upsettingly uh, short amount of time left of my 20s. <laughs> and I've um, been sober for 20 months and well done yeah cheers let's start with the questions okay i have 12 sets of questions or 12 questions rather which i'm going to ask everybody mm. who's going to come after you and so the first question is did you have any adverse childhood experiences um i would say that i did i think it's um on balance you know I want to say that everyone has these things, but I'm not sure if that's true. Mm. I think, you know, everyone has an experience of saying, oh, that shit thing happened to me. And, um, you know, kind of that's maybe kind of why I am the way that I am. But um, no, I did have some um, adverse childhood experiences. My um, my mum is an alcoholic and um, she unfortunately is still drinking. So... Um, her alcoholism kind of appears in the form of lots and lots of crying, wondering why people um, aren't helping her um, when her behaviour is just to get dr get drunk and shout at you and then pass out and, um, you know, vomit all over herself and then someone's got to clean it up. And you do that enough times, um, people start to go, well, why should I try and pick up the pieces for you when I can see you're making no effort to pick them up yourself? So my dad left her and then I stayed with her. So I had to kind of pick up after her and be her, well, I guess be her husband, be her carer, be her, well, I wasn't really her son. I was just like a guy that shared the house with her. So that I suppose is my main, um, my main kind of adverse experience. And of course, like the little things like getting left by my dad didn't take me but I'd say that was that was I suppose the core thing I think of in my childhood mm -hmm. how old were you when this became really relevant to you I suppose I can remember my mum I remember my mum and dad fighting a lot when I suppose from nine 
So my mum would go into the garden so that she could just chain smoke out there. And my dad, he worked at the hospital, so he would get home late and he'd come home to find my mum out there. And, um, you know, they would just be screaming at each other and I'd wake up and remember that. And then a couple of years after, yeah, he uh, he left her and I needed to then do more. So, yeah. That didn't leave you a lot of space for just being a kid or a a teenager? Mm, not really, no. I mean, I don't really know what it is. I mean, I had very good times as a teenager, you know. I had um, a really good group of friends that I'm still very close to, you know, 16 years on now. Most of us have moved and we um, all live in London now. And um, we were able to have lots of parties at my house because it was in the middle of the middle of the countryside and of course my mum wasn't too opposed to us drinking a lot and smoking and vomiting all over the garden <laughs> so i mean we had we had a lot of fun it was nice mm. but um if i had, if i saw someone now with a slightly more pronounced age that i have um i would look at that person and the way that they're letting their teenager behave and i'd go you are absolutely out of control they need some boundaries but when we're teenagers i mean i felt like a grown up so i was like yeah i'm allowed to do all these grown up things and these mature things but really i yeah but it was i suppose those were some teenage experiences do you think that because you were looking after things almost as an adult that you were entitled to behave a bit like that oh i totally was i uh, i remember even thinking i couldn't i shouldn't have to be able to do my homework um, I would tell teachers that and there was this one teacher who I didn't really like who kept asking me where this like English like assignment was and I was like do you know what's going on for me at home and she just went yes which is why I've already given you a two-month extension and um, you can't expect things to just be put off forever you have to do something you have to hand it in and um, yeah I definitely used it as my as my reason to think well you know you've not gone if you went through what i went through you'd you'd drink and you'd do drugs and blah 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 but yeah um how did it, it affect you i mean your mother behaving outside the norm somewhat Ooh. and you feeling that you are not just feeling you were having to pick up after her and looking after your mother parenting your own parent mm. how did it feel well how does it feel um, it feels, I suppose at the time and now, in terms of an emotion, I don't really know what there is there because, I, you know, I would feel angry, sad, abandoned, uh, hopeless, but really it just it is not just entirely unfair. Mm. And I think other people don't have to go through this. Mm. Why do I have to go through this? Um... Yeah, you know, I was a child, so I wasn't responsible for kind of what was happening to me, really. But, you know, my dad did offer to kind of take me to go and live with him. So, and I said no, um, because I thought, I saw, I saw that I saw my mum like in, in bits, um, you know, clearly very unwell. And I couldn't understand how anybody could leave somebody in that state when you supposedly love them or have made a commitment mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's unfair on her that she's being left. I don't understand, you know, that she needs to take responsibility for herself. Um, 
And so I thought, I, I'll do it. Um, but that didn't help her much. And it certainly didn't help me. So mm. I just felt the whole thing was exceptionally unfair. Mm. And that I would, you know, I deserved more. Because I did deserve more. But mm. I think I then tried to take maybe what I had taken from... I had tried to take back something. I don't know what it was, but that was taken from me in childhood. Mm. You know, I just tried to get back fun or some power or some experience because home was so shit mm. that I was like, well, introduced to like cocaine at 15. I was like, yeah, mm. that's great. That takes rid of, that gets rid of all of my problems. Um, and I still, I still struggle with, um, with the feelings of kind of being in that, growing in that, growing up in that, um, in that house. Um, but I feel a lot better than I have done in many, many years. And it's just a process of, you know, feelings will come up. I know that they won't break me. I know that they won't, I don't need to drink over them or do drugs over them or look for some kind of validation through whatever it is, like, you know, sex or kind of like social media posts or something. Um, I just kind of have faith that things will work out now. Mm. If I just probably put my feet up and... I'm kind and gentle with myself. So you said you were introduced to cocaine at 15. Mm. So what, it's the next question, what did the moment you first got hooked or the fun times, what did that look like? Mm. Gosh. I think the first thing I really liked, I, I liked booze, um, drinking in parks with my friends at like 14, 15. And then, yeah, I did find that very fun. Um, although I would always be the first person to like vomit and pass out. And then I would uh, have a nap for two hours and I'd resurrect. Um, and then found weed, uh, like 15. And then Coke came afterwards. And I don't think I actually really felt, I didn't really feel that cocaine was this amazing high or I felt this kind of like, you know, I felt the effects of it, sure, but I didn't feel like it was this, wow, you know, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. I just felt like it was quite glamorous and, you know, like, I mean, like I was a kid, so I felt like it was just like the, you know, rich bitches in New York, um, you know, like at glamorous parties when actually I was being picked up in some kind of old, like, Rover car um, by a man who... You know, looking back on it, I'm like, that was grooming because he um, he was like 32 and we were 15. It was me and my friend. It was a friend's um, family friend uh, who did end up like having a, a sexual... My friend ended up having a sexual relationship with this person and um, just kind of used to... This guy used to ask my mate to bring all of his friends around and we would just like do coke in his car, drive to, between, you know, different cities in the countryside at like three o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. I got school the next day. And um, yeah, I just was more excited to actually not be in my house. <laughs> but um, I think the time that I properly started enjoying or, yeah, enjoying drugs was... I think sometime after I moved to London, I'd always been drinking. I'd always liked drinking a bit too much. But with drugs, I think it was when I was offered crystal meth 
on um on the when was it it was uh it was such a stupid idea it was the i'd gone on a night out and um i'd done mdma with my friend and we got home and i couldn't sleep and it was in 2020 and it was on the leap day so it was the 29th of february and somebody offered over of kind of a popular gay dating app somebody said hey would you like to come over and do gnt and i was like i love gin and tonics but um it turns out it was the crystal meth and ghb and uh, and the person was really really fit so i thought well i see a lot of i see the potential of like getting to spend time with a beautiful person um a new drug but i'm already a bit um a little bit fucked up so i don't really care about doing that and also it's the 29th of february it's a free day why would i not and um i went and i did that and that was the drug where i felt like all of my feelings of that i'd ever felt of being kind of not attractive enough not good enough not loved enough that kind of horrible um i suppose just feeling of being a person that's not 100 percent perfect was gone and um yeah that's where um i i properly committed to um to looking at this drug to fix all of my problems how did that progress so when i was at um this guy's house i was there for 24 hours which is i think the longest time i'd ever done to like consistently taking drugs and of course i was just um you know so it's, it's a very it's a very horny drug so it was just like a lot of sex um for that whole time as well you know i'd never experienced anything like that and then from there I kind of realised what I'd done and I confessed to my housemates who were also my friends that I'd um, gone and done this drug and I thought, um, I'm t- and I said, I'm telling you this because I never want to do it again because that's that's one of the bad ones. You know, that's the breaking bad drug. That's the, you know, one that's up there with like heroin and fentanyl where it's like you just don't do that one. Um, and I think I was able to not do it for probably like two weeks you know, two months or like three months or something, but I wasn't able to get the feeling of like how good the experience was at what what I thought at the time, you know, uh, you know, like how strong the high was, the fact that because the drug is so strong that the people that are doing it, um, you know, a lot of them like very, very beautiful people uh, don't really care who's around. And so you'll be in these like quite odd, like, you know, sex parties because all you know, all I think at the core of it, all I really wanted was to kind of like feel loved and like desirable. And you'd be at these kind of rooms full of like maybe like like up to ten people. I know that sometimes there are these again inverted commas chill outs where it's like fifteen, twenty people just in like some kind of hotel room or someone's house in London's just going on any any time um, where people are doing um, crystal meth and GHB. But I, um, yeah, I couldn't stop thinking about um, the, you know, the feeling of that, the being desired and actually how much fun I had. So I think I then went on to being a bit of a weekend warrior with it. And I tried to make a point of not buying my own stuff because people are very generous when they're fucked off their faces. Um, And it's actually quite cheap and lasts quite a while uh, relative to something like cocaine. But um, yeah, it, by the end of that year, like I got to November, I was having like full weeks buying it myself and then and kind of like started to have a couple of psychotic breaks. So I'd say about like 10 months from the first time trying it to wanting to do it 
all day, every day. It's a really powerful combination, of course, sex and drugs. Mm. And rock and roll. <laughs> and rock and roll. And for all those maybe who are not sort of familiar with that scene that you were part of mm. at that time, what's that look like? I mean, how do you communicate with each other? How do you know which place to go to and, and who brings what and, and, and so on? I think how would this sort of come about? What would that look like? Yeah. So I think it's not so much, in my experience, it wasn't so much organized. And I think I didn't really find that, you know, there definitely is a scene, but I don't know whether I've, I would definitely partook and I was there for a bit, but I don't know whether I was like a member of, if there was a club, I don't know if I was in it. Normally what would happen would be, um, if you go on to like a gay dating app, well, for gay men or men who have sex with men, you will find that um, it doesn't show you like a stack of people like it does on Tinder or Hinge or something where you say, this person generic, you know, generally lives close to you. Like if you live in London, they might be on the other side of London and you can say yes or no to them. That These dating apps will uh, show you uh, how far away the next person is by the foot and whether they're online or not. And if you're if, say, for example, you go on it at two o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, the people that are online, you probably, they're either, you know, they've woken up to go to the bathroom or they are up and they're partying and they're looking for a bit of company because you don't want to be by yourself doing that because it gives you such a strong urge to do stuff with other people. Um, sexually. Yeah, sexually. And, um, well, there's only so much porn you can watch until you get bored and you want to do it yourself. Um, so... It would kind of be one person says, hey, do you want to come over? And then you end up both like looking on these apps, looking for somewhere else. And um, or one person will say, I have a free place, come to me. And before you know it, um, what started off as kind of a solo venture, you've got eight people around you. And you're like, oh, it's a bit crowded in here. Because often it's just like a room with a single bed with like lino flooring and um porn playing on an iPad mini in the corner at a very low volume because you're afraid that other people are going to, in the, like the neighbouring flats are going to hear. It's not very, it's looking for, looking at it from the outside, it's probably, well, I know that it probably looks quite sad and upsetting and distressing. Less glamorous. glamorous less glamorous. I would hope. Absolutely less glamorous. But, um, you know, that's... Chemsex played some part in my, in my story as well, albeit in a relationship with someone. Mm. And I know about how much, how big an influence it can have on on wanting to feel loved and wanting to be desired and mm. losing inhibitions and not really caring. That because it was within the within a relationship didn't take me to a very dark place. I mean, the drugs did, but not the chemsex part of it. Mm. Would you say the same for you, or did the chemsex? aspect of it become a something that had its own momentum mm. i think it became you know the sex i was having i was fine kind of a lot of people that do crystal methy have issues with having sex without the drugs at all and i was lucky and that wasn't my problem i was quite happy to have you know, sober sex or drunk sex or whatever, you know, I wasn't, my experience of sex wasn't entirely linked to, it wasn't entirely dependent on crystal meth. A, a little bit of it was, and coming into recovery, I've had to kind of unpick the, you know, 
fantasy or eroticism of those like chemsex parties from what's actually kind of um, what I want to have as like a, a healthy relationship towards sex. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. The drugs got dark um, because I was up for such a long time that your brain just starts to lose grip on reality. You know, by the end, I'd be 12 hours in and I'd go for a shower. You'd have to shower a lot with meth because it makes like, it makes like oily stuff come out of your skin. So you're just constantly scrubbing in the shower, like really, really have to scrub. Otherwise you just look like um, you've got a constant sheen all over your face. And um, I would turn the shower on and I would hear the shower hit the bottom of the bath basin. And um, I would always think that the shower was singing a Celine Dion song to me. One that she'd never actually recorded or released, but I heard the voice of Celine Dion in the shower. Um, and so that took me to some quite dark places. If, for example, if I'd be in a room with some other people, or it wouldn't even be some other people, it would be one other person. And I think for every hour, their identity would change to me. They'd have a different name. They would be from a different place. You know, every Why they're still the same person. Why they're still the same person. And then I'd start talking to them like they're entirely different. And they'd go kind of like, who are you talking about? And I'm like, you. Like, you, Diego. My name's Josh. No, Josh left uh, uh, two hours ago. So no, he's me. Was this you tripping? Or was this part of you really losing a sense of reality? I lost a sense of reality. Mm. It's not like acid where... You kind of, everything you're seeing, you believe at the time, but you know it's from drugs. It truly is a loss of a grip on reality. Mm. Um, like I truly lost my mind at the end. I think that was one of the only things that scared me enough, even though I thought I didn't care about anything in my life. Um, you know, I didn't really have much gratitude for what I had. But, you know, when people say, oh, well, like be thankful for your health and you're never um, grateful unless... You know, you, you get a cold or, you know, you're feeling like run down and you're lying in bed when going... When it's taken away. When it's taken away. And so losing my mind or literally my grip on reality, not being able to... Yeah, there was times that I'd like... I'd woken up in hospital once after a big bender and I thought I was in like a BBC show that was like a hospital mockumentary about um, hospital staff who were um, who were like taking photos of women in the x-ray booths and... You know, um, you know, putting uh, bad hip replacements into into old women to save money, and I thought I was in the show that I'd already seen, so I knew the plot. It's truly nonsensical. So I would run around scaring people and like shouting at doctors. And normally I'm quite mild mannered, but this that was, um, you know, it's terrifying for other people perfect, as well as me. And it's a perfect segue for. Question number three, which is, what were your worst consequences? And finally, your rock bottom. Oh, yeah. My worst consequences, I'm actually quite fortunate in that I didn't have many, um, many, many consequences in terms of my life. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my friends. I um, didn't lose my job, although I quit it. Um, like, nothing... Nothing happened. It was all internal for me. Um, I was very lucky in that my dad, my friends asked my dad for help with me. 
And what prompted them to do so? Well, that psychotic episode that put me in hospital. I put myself there because I um was uh, I thought I thought a child was trapped in a boot of a car, and uh, I tried to get the child out. Of course, it's all in my head. The owner of the car comes out and is like, "What? Why are you attacking my car?" And I called the police on him for child trafficking, and of course, they took me to hospital. And so, were you sober when this was happening? Absolutely not. No, I was. No, no, that was. I'd been in the middle for, of it. I'd been up for six days. Six days. Six whole days. Yeah, that was quite normal. And in terms of the drug taking, like to party all night and then to scrub stuff off me and then to try and just fumble through a work day. In a nutshell, talk me through those six days. What does that look like? So it's when you get started on a Thursday because you're a bit bored and you're thinking the weekend is coming, that sort of thing? I don't, when was it? Well, this was my following my birthday. Um, so went on a night out with my friends, drinking, and then came home. The Sunday, I told everyone I had a date. So I actually uh, just went to some guy's house to use. Used with him. It was time for me to leave because his place was disgusting. Um, like no bed sheets, uh, rubbish everywhere. This whole place smelled of cat piss. Uh, and it was horrible. I, I got there and I was like, you need to give me something right now because I don't know if I'll be able to like stomach being in here um, unless I'm absolutely off my tits. So um, left him on the way home. I stopped at someone else's or finding them through kind of different apps like live at the time. Um smoked so much in his room that it set off the fire alarms for the whole kind of like hotel that he was in. It's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, tried to pretend I'd get through the work day, tried to go to sleep, couldn't quite go to sleep. Well, so you, you, you not slept, but you still managed to get to work the next morning and get through a work day. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think... Uh, a lot of the time it would be, you know, working from home or, you know, in the office, but, you know, just doing kind of little admin tasks. You know, there'd be a couple of hours in the day where I actually felt fine. But, um, you know, from day four or five onwards, it just gets the grip on reality starts to go like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I would be unable to read something through that I'd written and be able to tell whether it was, you know, coherent English. You know, I wouldn't be able to string sentences together really um yeah it was kind of i just completely powerless did that scare you in, at the time it scared me when it wasn't happening when it was happening i was just i was just so preoccupied with um coming down because it's powerful so you'd lose the high but then you would be up probably for another 12 hours and so in that time of starting to, like, where I can't, couldn't really sleep, I never quite cracked things like sleeping pills. Um, like, I, I never got them because I never really planned. Um, I would just start, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to go to bed tonight. I'm going to go to bed tonight. And then it would get to the evening and I wouldn't be able to sleep. And then I'm just trying to think about how to feel better. And then I would just go out again and start it all over again because at least I'm not feeling like shit. So that was... Yeah, that was the that was the cycle of that. So you'd go through the work day, but you wouldn't be smoking in that time during the work day. In the day? Yeah. Mm, I would kind of let maybe like four or five days in, I maybe would have like a little, you know, two puffs at like one o'clock in the afternoon to like wake me up. 
but I could sit there and um, smoke consistently probably for like an hour and a half or two hours and then go, okay, I'm high enough now. But of course you just get over-amped and like very shaky, cold fingers, like sweating profusely, which mixes with like the oily stuff coming out of the skin is disgusting. And by the end, like smoking wasn't really doing it for me. And um, It doesn't sound fun. No, it's um, it's not. It was. I had great fun at the beginning, but in the end, uh, it just wasn't. It wasn't like I could have like a couple of puffs and go, "Oh, that's fun," or "I feel a little bit up now," or "Do you want to have sex?" It would be like I need to get absolutely off my face, and then just kind of being a bit, you know, like drooling, like hanging out with people. It's not not fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which brings us back to your rock bottom and what brought you into the room. Mm. Rock bottoms, I think I had two. Um, it's funny, a lot of people were telling me were telling me for a long time that I had a problem with alcohol. And because my drinking didn't look like my mum, I thought, um, don't be silly, I'm perfectly fine. Um, I wasn't behaving badly or anything. I just was drinking a lot and going out and choosing drink over doing something, you know, good for myself or, you know, missing um, like lunches and stuff. You know, it was kind of minimal stuff. But I, um, with crystal meth, I um, thought, at the end of 2020, I thought some people were trying to break into my house. So I, um, all, all delusion, um, you know, drug-induced psychosis. And I called my friends and I told them that I was scared that this was happening to me. So I kind of had publicly outed myself. Um, and they were all very concerned. And then that at the time was my rock bottom because it was so publicly humiliating. Mm. And, um, I made a, I mean, I decided that, you know, it's not worth, um, it's not, nothing is worth that experience. I felt so horrible that I would just not do drugs or I wouldn't drink. And, um, so you called your friends while you were high. I texted them saying, I think someone's trying to break in. And then they called me and they seen that I was awake. And they are, they're like, how long have you been awake for? Mm. Um, and they were like, I think you just need to go to bed. And they had a word with me. One friend wrote me a very long letter saying, I will not be friends with someone that does crystal meth. And I was like, well, yeah, that's pretty fair. Um, and so I decided I wouldn't. And I did lots of exercise. I, you know, I tried to stay clean by doing lots of exercise um, by, you know, trying to do lots of coffee dates with friends. Luckily, I had a very close friend who was um, trying to be sober. Not not an addict, but just realised that drinking didn't agree with her, so she just mm. stopped. Someone suggested I go to like a 12-step meeting like AA or something, and I turned up a couple of times. I thought, oh, this is crap. Um, but and I'm like, it's just a bunch of people complaining and you want me to turn up and complain about why I'm a crap person for an hour and apparently that's going to help me stay sober. That's what I thought it was. And so I didn't want to do that. I then, um, after eight or nine months of sobriety, like just white knuckling it, just like, you know, gritting my teeth and bearing it. um, I then got signed off from work with depression because I felt like no ability to feel joy. Um, Did you suffer a lot of obsession around this time? I mean, eight months is a long time. I know from myself that I did an enormous amount of white knuckling because oh, I, yeah. 
I always wanted to show that I was stronger uh. and didn't want to come to the rooms at all. No. And so I did a lot of white knuckling for a long time and the obsession would just grind me down. Yeah, it would. It would mm. kind of transfer onto different things. So the start would be exercise and then it would be on cooking and then it would be um, on... Um, and then it would be on sex and then it would be on something else. And none of these things made me feel better. Well, they did for a short time, but it wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. And so I did, I thought, of course I've, you know, if I'm feeling terrible and I'm looking for all these different things to fix how I'm feeling, but they don't work. I'm not surprised. I felt so bad that I need to get signed off from work. And over the, weirdly, Taking the work away meant that I had nothing. I didn't want to fill my day with anything. And so that just made me feel worse. And then I got, um, and then I had a very dramatic moment, and like overly dramatic moment, where I started like telling my friends that if I can't go on a night out, I'll kill myself. And so, because uh, that's how I felt. I was like, if I can't go and experience some joy and be young and have fun, then um, I don't see what's the point, honestly. And... Um, I went on a night out and it was perfectly boring. Um, and with friends, yeah, with friends, sober friends, no, uh, drinking friend. And so we went on a night out together, and it was a perfectly boring night out. Nothing really happened. Uh, but I'd started drinking again, so pretty soon after that, went to, uh, went, you know, down the A to LSD of drugs and, um ended up back at meth and GHB and after a year of like since the last time you know where I'd publicly embarrassed myself with my friends getting put into that situation that put me in hospital following my birthday that was um that was the moment where I truly had hit rock bottom because I just had had no idea what I was going to do and I thought, I can't do this by myself. I don't, I don't, I don't got this. Um, you know, I, yeah, so I asked for help. And my friends called my dad and he came to help me and managed to find me a, a treatment centre where I went in. I went, I was booked in for two weeks and then um, they extended it to 28 days. But um, in there, it was kind of where I got, it was encouraged um, that we go to twelve-step meetings, so I won't I won't publicise any particular one. But you know, I uh, went to a twelve-step meeting, and um, I thought, you know, I didn't like this before, but if I'm these people are sober, and you know, a lot of them have been sober for a very long time, and uh, I'm quite I'm willing to do whatever they do. Um, just tell me what to do, where to go, um, and. Hopefully I can get what you get. Mm. You sort of touched on it a little bit beforehand. And that's step um, question four um. which I have for you and, and for everybody else. Did you ever want to die? Did you consider suicide at yeah. your worst time? At my worst time? Or at any other time for that matter? Well, yeah, I think at my worst time. Following... Weirdly, no, uh, on my worst time, because I think up until I'd hit rock bottom, I did think I'd just want to die. 
um, you know, I, I'd wanted to, I had several moments throughout my childhood, like when I was 15, where I thought, oh, you know, I don't see the point in any of this. You know, I feel terrible. I meant to just genuinely thought my purpose in life and to the end of my days, my purpose would be to look after and pick up, pick up after my mum um, as some kind of like, you know, punching bag stroke cleaner. And no, I definitely didn't want to live. And um, I think that's kind of why I drank and used so much because I thought there wasn't, what's the consequence to me? What's the consequence of me um, drinking and using? It's, um, you know, like I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to go out and have fun. But when I lost, when I lost my grip on reality and when I started losing my mind and I truly had something taken from me that I didn't even know I cared about because um, it had never occurred to me to be grateful for the fact that I can think clearly. Um, I think I'd felt fear for the first time and in that fear was the fear of not living and that there is, it is possible to have less than you ever believe that you can have. And so I think I wanted to, I wanted to try and I don't think I wanted to try. I'd, I'd not wanted to try in a long time. And so I was willing. But, yeah, that's kind of how I came to it. And question five, and you've already touched on that a little bit, and perhaps you can expand just a little. What other methods did you try to get sober before finding the names? Mm. I only tried once, and it was that stint of sobriety following my first psychotic break. All other times I thought everyone else had the problem, not me. Or that I was fine because I wasn't on a park bench or blah, blah, blah. Or looked like my mum or blah, blah, blah. Um, focus on exercise. Try and uh, control um, my routine. Made sure that I kind of had ticked locks, lots of different boxes. That I was seeing friends enough. That I was doing some kind of hobby. So, you know, I booked lots of different kind of music lessons, language lessons, um, went to, I spent too much money on fancy gym classes. I'm spending more on, I'm spending more than I ever had on fancy gym classes now, but um, it's, it's a nice thing that I, I can afford it and I actually enjoy them now. Um, well, these things are all good things yeah, in many good ways. Things. You follow your interest and your talents yeah. and you speak several languages and, and, you know, you want to expand on that, you mm. know, looking after yourself, going to the gym. These are all good yeah. things. But there were... But they're not they, the only thing. No, and they were there to as opposed to just enjoy them for what they are, they were there to distract you. Exactly. From your obsession of wanting to use. Exactly. And um, I thought all of them would fix me or that if I was focusing on them, if I were focusing on them, I wouldn't be focusing on how I felt. Um, it's just some kind of exercise in either denying how I feel because I think one of the biggest things that I got when I came in or when I was ready to ask for help was just accepting where I'm at and how I feel and even if I'm afraid or even if I think I'm going to fuck it all up or even if I think that I can't do it, um, just accepting those feelings as valid and not trying to change them and not trying to run away from them. Um, just being able to sit with them all and take a breath and then be able to just do, not run away from them and just do the next right thing or ask for help. That's the place that I think healing started for me when I couldn't do that previously. 
So you went to rehab and, and you're in this rehab and it was a 12-step rehab or it was encouraged mm. to attend 12-step meetings while you were there, which brings me to one of the, the biggest hurdles, I think, for many people who first come into the rooms and, and, and question six, which is, did you struggle with the word God? Yeah, I did. Absolutely. Um, I think because you sent me the questions ahead of time, I had to think about this mm-hmm. one. I um, I think I... My, orig- my instinct is to say no to this question, but really I had a lifelong dislike of the word God and organized religion. And I grew up, I grew up an atheist. In my house, um, knowledge was uh, king. Uh, facts were king. And you had to be able to kind of be able to prove or measure something. Like my dad is a, my dad's a scientist and my mum's quite an argumentative and smart woman as well. So you were taught faith in science. Faith in science, faith in knowledge, and we don't we don't need what those kind of woo woo people need. They're all a bit pathetic, you know, kind of superiority. That's kind of where we were, and that's how I behaved most of my life. I don't think I ever judged anyone. No, I don't think that's fair. Actually, I think I did judge people if they were religious. I would say. I would. I, the reason I think I didn't judge them is because I'd say, oh, it's probably not their fault. It's probably their parents. They just grew up in that culture and so they have it and it's not their fault. It's just, you know, if given the choice, they probably would say no. Which is condescending. Oh, it's exceptionally condescending. Exceptionally condescending. But, um, you know, I think there's a line within belief systems, isn't it, where we all say, well, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, when all is said and done, like, ult- if I think differently from you, I, I do think that you're wrong and I'm right. Mm. And I think there's a line there in, you know, except, you know, when is it acceptance? When is it just tolerance? It's like, I tolerate your point of view, but mm. I'm not taking mm. on. But that's kind of how I felt my whole life about about God. But um, So you're in rehab or you're coming to the rooms and, and, and here's your step three. And, you know, which where we turn our will in our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. And when I first read that, actually, when I first read that, I didn't come into the rooms at mm-hmm. all, right? Because that kept me out. That kept me out for a very, very long time, years. Um, and how did you then approach this when you you wanted to be sober, you wanted to stop using? Mm. I think before step three, we have step two. And before step two, we've got step one. So step one says, we admitted we were powerless over, insert name of your favorite yeah. drug or drink here. Mm-hmm. Um, we were powerless over this thing and that our lives had become unmanageable. Mm. That's an experience. Mm. Uh, I truly experienced that I was powerless over any kind of drug yes. or drink. And I knew my life had become unmanageable. I knew what that, I knew how that felt. I knew that I couldn't do anything to stop myself from doing drugs because I'm, I am a drug addict. So I will just go and do stuff. There's a promise in step one, really, that says, with love, you're fucked. You know, if you're an addict, mm. on living on your own world, trying to do it yourself, you're fucked. Basically, yeah. And if that is true, it leads on to step two to, to think, well, if I'm fucked, how do I unfuck myself? Mm. Well, I've got to be willing to entertain something. Mm. So it, when we come to step two, where it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, mm. I truly was at that place where I went, I was... Th- in my own words, I kind of was faced with a decision where I thought, can I drop my pride and entertain the idea that there might be something more powerful than me that I can't understand, that 
picks the sun up from behind the horizon in the morning and puts it back behind it at night um or that you know makes me feel good when i'm talking and laughing and having a good time with my friends you know whatever that thing is that creates that feeling or causes those things to happen if i can entertain for a moment that that power might one exist might exist not does exist but might exist and that it could help me um if i can drop my pride and investigate that um that would be one way to go but the second the other way to go would be for me to return to trying to take imaginary children out of cars mm. and i'm i would rather get laughed at for, if the choice is psychosis or god i pick god mm. and that was it that was quite simple i was ready to entertain it mm. and so you were desperate enough to allow that absolutely mm. um and i proved i don't know because of my step one experience i proved that i couldn't do it by myself so why would i try again mm. or why would i try to argue mm. i mean i did argue i argued a lot um i didn't want to accept something i didn't want to accept what um people with more clean time than me had to say because i thought that i was again superior and i had all the answers and i say well what about this and can we argue about that or if we look at this word it might mean two different things and they just go shut up listen to what i'm telling you you know what i'm telling you so just listen and do it mm. and um i surrendered to the process which helped massively i had a lot more energy when i wasn't trying to fight everyone mm. Mm. yeah and now that you've gone through the steps and you've been sober for a while How would you describe your higher power? Can you put it into words? Do you care to put it into words? Um, I don't think I could say what it is. Um, you know, I can tell some things about it. Mm. Um, I use the word God because I'm sneaky. And early on, I identified that if I'm using the word higher power, it's because I'm trying to keep one foot out. That is not the experience of a lot of people. They say higher power and they genuinely mean this big thing up in the sky. But I know that's me trying to not say, you know, I'm I'm not, I, I grew up, I've grown up in, an, in a Christian country. That's the word I have. That's the word I know for the big, you know, big good in the sky. You know, it's the biggest concept I've got for this power. So I will use the word God. And I use it to show that I'm all in to myself. Um, I find that fascinating, by the way. You're right. A lot of people say use the word higher power. I myself use the word universe and mystery sometimes mm. because having the problem that I always want to understand everything and this being something I cannot understand but only experience, mm. I call it mystery sometimes. For me, the word God is just assigned to something entirely different, to my mother's God, really. Yeah. You know, the dude with the laser beams in the sky, the, you know, who, who takes things away, you know, mm. um, and, and that you should be afraid of, and yeah. who's not nice, who's nasty. Mm. And for me, it was really important to differentiate that and say, no, for this different concept, the one that I had, I, I shed one, mm. the old one, so I'm okay to use a new word, or different word for this new experience, and either are possible. I think either really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're both linguists, so I suppose talking about words and how to reassign them is somewhat natural. Absolutely. I mean, it's 
you know, there's people have thought about different ways to view gods, you know, for as long as they've been able to put pen to paper, I think, you know, I definitely, my first instinct is to view God as, as one of the kind of monotheistic faiths would. So I think there's, when we talk about religion or spirituality, the first thing that comes to my head is that there's one and, but that's not to say that, you know, people who have an appreciation of, you know, you, if you accept that there's your mother's God and then your conception of it, that there are multiple ones, that that's wrong. You know, that's not, Mm. that's not true. I think I'm lucky because I didn't have the experience you had. Mm. Um, Well, I don't know whether I'm lucky, but my experience is different to yours. I didn't grow up with um, God being, you know, this, that, or the other. I didn't have a concept in Mm. it. I didn't think it was real. I knew religion was real. And I thought, Mm. I thought people that followed religions were idiots, Mm. but then I suppose they end up laughing because I didn't have a kind of spiritual basis to live my life upon. And then I ended up Shit's Creek mm. um, and had to turn to them. Uh. Perhaps perhaps the better question rather than to say, how would you describe your higher power is to say, how do you experience your higher power? Mm. How do you experience God? I... I think I have a constant contact. I feel it. Um, it's a wave of calm that comes over me, or it's um, it's being able to just look up. I live on the ninth floor of um, a building, and uh, I'm very lucky that I get to be able to look out at this quite big, great, wide sky. Um, and I know that I'm not in control, that something else is, it takes the pressure off me, and then I get that calm again. Um, I know it's, I think, a thing that I've had in the last, I suppose, six months or so of my recovery is this true confidence that working the, working the steps and working a program, as it has been explained to me, does work and not a confidence in the sense of arrogance thinking I'm fixed I'm done I know that I'm still you know I'm still ill like I still have an addiction um and if I don't take certain steps daily to deal with it then I'll go back because of the promise in step one um but confidence in the true like I suppose like in the latin sense of it in that like it means to you know confide or to trust that I know that if I do the things that are suggested to me or that are part of my program, that good things will happen or at least that I won't drink or take drugs. So I don't know, I have actually forgotten the question you've asked me. <laughs> How do you experience God in your life? And you've answered that brilliant. Yeah. Apart from the very obvious thing, which is that that I remember I remember so if I do these things that like I'll have a you know I have the confidence and the trust and so I know that if I go and um do certain things like you know pray meditate um you know help other people um say yes to friends when they want to do a podcast about recovery then I will be able to you know stay sober another day very much in the same way that I know that there are things in my life that I'm too afraid to do and I have been too afraid to do, like, 
use my skills because I'm afraid people will laugh at me for earnestly trying something that I care about. I don't want to be ridiculed about something I care about. It's you know, very, it would be humiliating and I don't want to be that vulnerable. So that often meant that I would not do anything. I'd sit at home and just kind of be angry at the world that I wasn't getting, I wasn't happy or I wasn't getting what I wanted. Um, having difficult conversations with people, um, you know, all, all you know, these different things that I'd be afraid to do in my life. If I can sit down and I can try and connect with God and I can ask for things like courage and, you know, willingness, compassion, I get it and it doesn't come from me. And so I can't explain it any other way because it's... um it works. It truly works. So I can't. Yeah, that's my experience of it. You've put it beautifully. Mm. Thank you. Going through the steps is the it's the game changer, mm. isn't it? Where you can we know this. It's it's talked about a lot in every in every meeting that we go to. Is that you can go as many meetings you can go to as many meetings as you like. It's not going to keep you sober. What no. keeps you sober is that change within you going through the steps, going through all the 12 steps, which, there's our eighth question, which part of the steps were the most difficult for you? Difficult. I think step one was the most difficult one for me. I think that was a place where I was, you know, I was very afraid and I didn't quite know if, um, I, I was unsure whether I was doing it right. I, you know, I did a large written step one in my rehab and they, I, you know, I was very happy to write every single piece of paper they gave me, rewrite bits, put, um, justifications in some places, remove it in others, you know, uh, detailing how powerless you were. Yeah. I mean, I, when I say kind of, you know, I, I wrote it as well as I could the first time they'd say, you know, what were the the consequences of this, what did you do here? I wrote it all down and I know, and the, I didn't notice. It was pointed out to me that I put, but, or um, at the same time, someone else said, blah, blah, blah. I was always giving these justifications about why it wasn't my fault. And um, learning to take responsibility for my own actions was a big thing, but I didn't struggle with that. Someone just told me and I went, yeah, okay, fine. I'll rewrite it. Um, I was very happy to go and do all the things, but I didn't, really know whether I was, you know, I'm very good at being the best student in school, you know, about I will do everything that I will do everything that you ask of me, but I don't know whether it's because I want to get well or because I want to please you. And I struggled with that for a while. And, um, you know, when I was able to actually think, oh, I'm doing this for myself, um, that was a bit of a turning point, but there was a it was very difficult for me to get just because I'd not had to drop my pride or anything before. Um, following that, the, my best step, I think, was step three. I had a very good and powerful experiencing experience connecting with my God. Um, I didn't mind my step four. I quite like writing about things that I don't I like writing about all the things I hate. feels good to hate sometimes. Um, not good for you, 
not good for me. <laughs> but you know, it does. Uh, people wouldn't hate unless it felt good to do it. Um, but as addicts, we need to deal with our hatred or our resentments. And um, I was also fine to do a step five and talk to my sponsor about it because I'm sometimes more on the open book side than on on the closed. You know, I used to trauma dump on people where I would say, "Here are all the things that are wrong with me, and here's here's everything that's happened in my life," and they go, "Whoa, that's a lot." So that was fine. I think I struggled more with um, principles and action and routine. I struggled more with um, discipline and um, being able to do things on a regular basis. Even these days, I'm not fantastic with mm. taking my inventory. I'm not, um, but I do do it. Um, and that's a beautiful follow-on right there to question nine, which is, which character defects give you most trouble today? What character defects give me most trouble? I am quite lucky that I've not, I see on other people's step tens that I get resentments quite often. I'm like, no, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fine. I struggle a bit here and there when someone's annoying me, but, um, It goes very quickly. What character defects do I deal with? I struggle with my um, ambition. My ambition wants me to focus more on work than it does on recovery. And I need to make sure that you know, recovery is the cornerstone of my life. Everything I put before it, I will lose. So this has to come first. And everything that comes afterwards um, is only from the grace of God, really, and the people that have helped me. It's not me. Um, so I struggle with my ambition. Um, I, yeah, I think that's that's the main one. Mm -hmm. Question 10. What is the best thing that recovery has given you? The best thing, the single best thing. All the best things. I tell you, it's... um. For those that don't know, um, we read something at the end of our meetings that's called The Promises. It talks about, um, you know, all the things that, you know, getting a life beyond your wildest dreams or things that um, you never would have been able to conceive before coming to recovery. And early on, you know, the things that we want are a day free from drinking drugs, not to be obsessing. Um, and I forget that those are the most important things mm. because now the things that I'm most grateful for are things like um, the ability to not self-sabotage, to not have a bad day, that the ability to actually go through a bad day and say I'm like working towards a goal, like whether it's a fitness goal or it's um, some kind of financial goal or goal for my work, you know, something that will require me to like go and do some physical exercise or make a healthy meal or um you know um you know do a task write something i would previously not want to do anything because i'd feel like crap or i go i feel shit i'm going to have a i'm going to have a cheat meal so i get a, i get a pizza spend like 40 quid on like a delivery for myself that would just make me feel like crap afterwards or I wouldn't turn up to something. And then afterwards I'd go, well, now I feel crap because I felt crap yesterday. And I feel crap because I did that thing that was not working towards my long-term goal. 
And now, because we work discipline in the program, I'm able to have some discipline to go through, just do these tasks. And it really is the, these are like small incremental little things that have led to some kind of massive changes in my life outside Mm. of, you know, in my, in my, you know, physical, you know, outside of recovery life. Mm, mm. It's, um, in the material world. In the material, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for, material. Mm. It's a physical. But, um, massive changes. What kind of changes? Being able to just do stuff, even if I don't feel like doing it. Mm. Um, like freedom. Freedom. Um, like, it really is the thing that we shouldn't be talking about or we try not to talk about in meetings, but I've got more money than I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and not because like I had the, you know, I've been able to go and put myself in situations that I'd be afraid to do and then just, you know, do tasks that I didn't necessarily want to do. There are things I find interesting, but I wouldn't want to do them previously because I'd be afraid. And um, I've, making more money than I've ever made. And I'm, I think it's absolutely crazy. Um, you know, I look the best I've looked in, I think, ever. And I... This is a podcast, uh, so... Can I, I just, know, I know. But can I just, for the listener... So I'm seven foot tall <laughs> and I have a shoulder... Like, no, I don't. I am. Um, <laughs> can I just, for the listener, can I just uh, give you the thumbs up here? Absolutely right. You've not looked this good in a very, very long time, surely. Yeah, no, I've not. Um... I'm kinder with my friends. I have enough self-worth to say, um, you know, no, I don't want to do something. I'm not people pleasing. Mm. Um, I feel like my time is mine. I feel like I'm in control of my life. Well, I'm not in control of my life, but I feel like I at least, and I'm not in control of my life because, you know, in step three, when you give over your will, that's a permanent thing. Uh, We try and, I try and take it back quite often, but I can give it over again. But, when I ask for stuff in in my prayers or in my life, you know, it's not up to me to say whether it will happen. It's just for me to express an interest and say, I would, like, please, you know, help me um, work towards this goal. I will do as many right things as I can to make it happen and for other people. And if it happens, great, thank you. And if it doesn't, it's okay. Um you know, I have a say. Because def- if it happens, I had a say. Can't take all the credit, but he'll go ahead. But if um, it doesn't, I'm not that mad. Mm-hmm. I'm not that bound to the outcome. Amazing. Yeah. Question 11. What would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? Well, someone wondering if they're an addict. I will, well... The thing I want to say, and the, I think the thing I'm trained to say at meetings is, if you think you're an addict, you probably are. Um, you know, everyone is welcome at all meetings. Um, you know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to, you know, stay clean or to uh, not pick up a drink or a drug. So go, if that is your true desire. Um, but, yeah, I think it was explained to me that if you, you you know, if you believe that you are powerless over drink and drugs and that you have this constant horrible feeling in you that you look to um, external sources to solve 
Um, and then when you are using those external things like drink, drug, drink, drugs, food, gambling, spending money, you know, if that gets to the point where you're fucking yourself over and you've got quite big consequences, um, but also that once you start, you can't stop unless you're stopped, then yeah, you probably are an addict and you probably need to come along and have them, you know, talk to the people at the meeting. But, you know, no one can tell anyone if they're an addict or not. It's a personal experience. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I felt. And what was the first part of the question? Sorry. What would you say to a newcomer? Oh, what would I say to a newcomer? You're most welcome. <laughs> You're not alone. Recovery is possible if you put the action in. You know, some people, I think it's my favourite thing I've heard in recovery. Some people want it. Uh, some people need it, but the only ones that get recovery are the ones that do it. And if you can get out of your own way and give up all of your reasons to not do it, like, oh, you know, my meetings on, you know, I've had this with some sponsees um, who at the start of working with them, I'll say, are you prepared to go to any length? And they'll say, yeah, I am. And I think in their head, they have this idea that when I say, oh, will you go to any lengths? They're imagining me saying, if I asked you to jump across a ravine or abseil dive down the side, you know, these big things. They go, that put you yeah, in physical danger. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like, I'll do whatever. I'll scale Everest if it means I can be sober. A lot of the time, it's me saying, I want you to meet me at four o'clock or no, seven o'clock on a Wednesday. And they go, oh, no, I've got dinner. And I'm going, that's not any length. You've got to put recovery first. Mm. You've got to get out of your own way and stop thinking, oh, what can I get away with? I'm like, oh, I'll try it. Like, no, you have to say no to stuff in order to get recovery. Um, you have to get into the habit of putting it first. Um, because as I've mentioned, you know, everything that you put before your recovery, you will lose. Mm. I will lose. Um, but also we have a lot. We have a right laugh. Uh, so, you know, life isn't going to get boring when you come in. Um, I'll say I think I've been having the, the most fun in the last couple of months since I've relaxed a bit into this recent stint of sobriety. I'm having an absolute ball. I can't believe I ever mm. went and did drugs and drank. I'm like, this is so much more fun. So much more fun. I don't feel like shit all the time. There's a thing you say that quite a lot that I quite like that you know when we're doing when we're drinking or taking drugs you are like on a hamster wheel like you're constantly um you know either at the top of it or you're spinning back down to the bottom but the goal is just to kind of be in the middle and you're not there for very long and you're just constantly up and down and uh here we do live we live in the middle yeah it's the hamster wheel of addiction you're either on your way up or you're on your way down but you're always in that wheel and really always in the cage yeah yeah we're coming to the end of the program and to the twelfth and last question, which is what do you want your higher power, God, to say to you at the pearly gates? Mm. Now you can take this question as seriously or as lightly as you like. I I'll honestly I think I just want to say well done. <laughs> you got there in the end. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. Just yeah, 
I honestly, I think that's it. Just um, well done. You did your best. Well done, Alex. You've done your best today. Thank you so <laughs> much for coming around and for spending time with me and for letting me ask you these questions. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's a wonderful way of working a 12-step, I think, and um, I'm entirely grateful. No, as am I to you. Thanks, Sylvia. Thank you, Alex. We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. While this pod is based on the 12-step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12-step fellowship. 12 Steps and 12 Questions is not substance or behavior specific. It's fully self-supporting and not for profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.